We're continuing our conversation and our study as we're working our way through the entire Bible. When Randy Fraser and I, and I partnered up, oh my, it's been nine months now, that we decided that the first thing we should do would be to go through the entire Bible looking for the big picture of Scripture. And we're using a great tool. It's a version of the Bible called the story. It's a chronological version of the Bible, and it's also an abridged version of the Bible. Uh, not meaning that any part of the Bible should be taken out, but if you want the big picture of the Bible, here are the main passages and the big stories. And so it's a helpful tool, a tool to help us understand the Bible. And if you're a guest, we're thankful that you're here. I want you to know we're into the New Testament portion of that study, uh, into our second New Testament lesson. And if you brought your copy either of the Bible or the story, would you please hold it up? I want to take a quick participation survey. I'm measuring today 93.1%. One of our better numbers. Way to go. Good job. Way to bring it. We look at chapter 23. We'll begin in just a moment, but first, let's pray. May we see Jesus today in just Jesus. And would you please have mercy upon the one who speaks, for his sins are many. Through Christ we pray. And all the church said, The college basketball game really just served as background noise for a lazy Saturday afternoon. I don't know the name of the player. I don't know the name of his team. But I will never forget the way the announcer described him. This fella, he said, is scary good. I turned around at the phrase and looked at the television screen and watched the replay of this guy as he trampolined over the defense and he carried the ball in both hands high above his head, high above the basket as if he were a leopard and the basket were a rat. And he pounced on it, shaking the rim and shaking the confidence of the players beneath it. And it felt to the announcer to render the obvious verdict. This guy is scary good. Not just scary. I was scary when I played high school basketball. <laughs> I was scary, except that I just stirred fear in our team. They were afraid every time I touched the ball they were afraid how I would dribble the ball. They were afraid where I was going to pass the ball. I actually scored an, a basket for the opposing team. I'm not making that up. I just got disoriented. So I was bad. I was scary bad. But this guy was good. He was scary good. I guess in every profession or in every endeavor, there's someone that is so good that their performance stirs fear in the heart of the opposition and amazement in the heart of the onlookers. This guy is good. And sometimes what they do is so astounding that their performance evokes phrases like these. 
Who can this be? Where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty words? They were amazed at his understanding. They were astonished that the wind stopped. When they heard these words, they marveled. All the people were astonished at his teaching. They marveled at his answer. Contemporaries of Jesus Christ understood the phrase, scary good. In fact, first century writers coined a Greek phrase to describe Jesus Christ. Scariest goodiest. <laughs> Why are you laughing? They'd never seen anyone do what Jesus did. They'd never heard anyone teach with the authority with which he taught. They'd never seen anyone so kind and yet so bold. Jesus was scary good. He was unlike any person that they had ever seen. And you need to look no further than his own baptism for an example. You might want to open your copy of the story to page number 266. Or if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. In the third paragraph on page 266, we read, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Most baptisms don't stir that kind of response, do they? The sky separates like a curtain. A voice bellows from the heavens. This is my son whom I love. The phrase here means unique, beloved, priceless. My beloved son, some of the translations say. Is this God's son? An onlooker might ask. And if this is God's son, why baptism? Baptism is an act for sinners. <laughs> Baptism is an act for those of us who desire to be cleansed. And yet here Jesus comes and he walks into the water among us, with us. He wades into the water of baptism. He was born in a common womb and raised in a common village and trained in a common carpentry shop. And now he steps into a common river and he muddies his toes and his skin gets moist. <laughs> He steps into the cool cobalt rivers, watered, colored, excuse me, the cool cobalt colored water of the Jordan River. And there he says to John the Baptist, it is proper for us to do this. Us. He became one of us. He identifies with us. The moldy, the stumbling, the fumbling. He says, it's right for us to do this. And just as he will someday be lowered from a cross into a physical grave, on this day he is lowered into the water of a watery grave. That was good. Last summer, our family traveled to Israel. I've been to the Jordan River several times but there was something about standing on the banks last summer that made me do something that I've never done before 
I was struck by the thought that Jesus could have been baptized in this very spot. Right here. So, I peeled off my t-shirt. Thankfully, I was wearing shorts. I took off my sandals. And I just walked out in the water. And I turned to my wife and my daughters who were standing on the bank. And I made the good confession. I said, I made this confession when I was 10 years of age. And now at the age of 53, I say it again. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I baptize myself in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I was already chest deep, so it didn't take much. And I just lowered myself down into the water. And as I was pushing myself back up, I felt something beneath my feet. And so I went under again, and I dug around in the riverbed, the muddy part, and I pulled this out, a stick. I'm guilty of overdoing it, all right. But it took on some symbolism for me. I thought maybe Jesus could have stepped on a stick like this. It was muddy. It was waterlogged. But it was a picture to me of how, God, how far God is willing to go. Not that our God is a distant dweller of some ethereal, untouchable location. But that he came and he walked on this earth in the sense that we can walk where he walked and we can measure when he was here and we can find his life on a calendar and we can find his birthplace on the globe and the river in which he was baptized continues to course its way across our earth that's how close he came it is good for us to do this he said he became one of us that was good that day in the river Jesus was good but that day in the desert he was scary he was scary with his skin still moistened from the Jordan River he went directly into the desert inhabited by hyenas by lizards and infested by thorns and there he stayed for 40 days until he could reenact the temptation from the Garden of Eden. I think it's worth our time to read the passage in its entirety. You'll find it also on page number 266. Or if you're looking in the Gospel of Matthew, flip the page to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, 
It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Every person on the face of the earth has wondered about the origins of evil. How do we explain this mystery of iniquity? Why do people do the things they do? From whence come our angry words, our hurting hands, our hateful hearts? How do we explain the human atrocities of Auschwitz, human trafficking, trafficking and abuse? If we trace evil upriver to its source, what will we see? Well, philosophers have offered a lot of answers. Some have said we'll see broken governments. Others have said malfunctioning economies. That's why we think we'll fix the world through the right government or a healthy economy. But the Bible says, trace evil upriver to its source and you'll see the devil. You'll see the very anti-God force in the world. According to Scripture, Satan is not a myth or an idea or a philosophy, but a real being who roams the earth looking for an opportunity to separate people from God. The name devil in Greek is diabolos. It comes from the same, it shares a root word, a root stem with diabolane, which means to divide. The devil comes to divide. He is a divider, a separator. So every time you see communities divided, families divided, or even hearts divided, there you see the work of Satan. But most of all, when you see people divided or separated from God, you see the work of Satan. That was the intent of the snake in the Garden of Eden when Satan came to try to separate, and he succeeded in separating Adam and Eve from God. And now Jesus comes, and he, in a sense, demands a rematch. And it's a rematch of Satan, this time with the perfect Adam, the second Adam. Jesus, our representative, comes and says, I knew what you did in the garden. Come on. See if you can give me your best punch. And Satan comes. And the response of Jesus is downright scary. Jesus doesn't budge an inch. Satan makes no progress. Every time Jesus speaks, he speaks about God. Satan cannot create a wedge between Jesus and God. Every time Jesus gives an answer, he talks about God. He speaks about living on the Word of God, anything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He talks about the Lord your God, the Lord your God. He's got God so much in his mind that Satan can't inch in. Jesus is strong vertically. Consequently, he does not fall horizontally. Satan comes to sow seeds of doubt, knowing that Jesus has just heard God say, you are my beloved son. Satan comes trying to create doubt. If you are really God, let's see some razzle-dazzle. But Satan, I'm sorry, Jesus does not take the hook. He doesn't take the bait. 
And in this classic showdown between good and evil, right and wrong, heaven and hell, Jesus and Satan, there is one clear victor, and it's not the devil. The devil turns and scampers away like a scalded dog. And we are left standing in amazement how strong Christ is in the desert. Satan gave him his best punch, and Jesus didn't even blink. And the demons who were watching this were saying, whoa, that's scary. That's scary. Jesus, when he dealt with the devil, was scary. Jesus, when he dealt with the devil's followers, was scary as well. Can I show you an example of that? Look in, in the story on page 274 or open your Bible to Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 6 through 11. As you're looking there, let me give you just a bit of background. You'll be surprised when I tell you that Satan's followers on earth in the time of Christ took the form of religious leaders. One of the great ironies, yes, the great tragedies, is that when Satan wanted to recruit an army to go against Jesus, he found his most willing volunteers in the clergy. Yes, the pastors and, and church leaders of the day. I guess we shouldn't be surprised when we seem to hear increasing stories of pastors struggling because they've always been right in the crosshairs of Satan's attack. They were in the days of Jesus. 6,000 religious leaders called themselves either a Sadducee or a Pharisee. And these Sadducees and Pharisees were not complimentary of Christ. They were jealous of him. Jesus said that they care more about the praise of men than they care about the praise of God. And when Jesus walked onto the stage, he took the spotlight off of them and they grew greedy and they grew angry and they decided to get even. One example of this is when Jesus encountered a man with a withered hand or the scripture calls it a shriveled hand it just hung like a loose appendage at the end of the man's arm it had been there all of his life and on the day that Jesus came to the synagogue you would think that the religious leaders would see this as an opportunity for the man to be healed but they did not here's what happened on page 274 after the commentary we read some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. But Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or evil, to save life or kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Can we pause there for just a second? and comment, I would not have wanted to be one of those men that day. I have been on the receiving end of an angry glare. Haven't you? My mother had an angry glare that could wilt an oak tree. Can you imagine what it would be like to feel the hot gaze of an angry God? That'd be scary. Then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Now look at this. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. <laughs> kill Jesus? Why not thank Jesus 
Why not worship Jesus? Why not applaud Jesus? Why not find every withered-handed man in the county and bring them to Jesus? But the devil had separated the clergy from Christ, and they missed his coming. But there was one great exception, and we'll close with his story. He, too, was among the clergy. But unlike the others, he was intrigued by the story of Jesus. His name was Nicodemus, and Satan didn't separate him from God. Yes, he was a religious leader. He was even one of the highest of the highest. He was on the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin of the religious leaders. But he saw Jesus differently than anyone else. Turn to page number 269, or look in your Gospels in John chapter 3 and verse 2. And on page 269, right below the little commentary paragraph, you read the sentence that tells how Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. That's right. Nicodemus is the original Nick at night. (laughs) And Jesus hears Nicodemus say these words. We know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, we do not know the tone in which Nicodemus asked that question. And some think Nicodemus here is being arrogant and official and distant. But I tend to think he's being honest because of the change that takes place in that very conversation he seems to me to be saying you know I really know there's something about you but I just don't know what it is and Jesus sensing a very honest heart says these words very truly I tell you no one can see the kingdom of God without being born The thought cold cocks Nicodemus. He's never heard anything like this in his life. Born again. He's a part of a religious tradition that says, try again, attempt again, work again. But born again, and he speaks for us all when he says, how could this be? How could this be? How does anybody get a fresh start? Do we really get a new beginning Who wouldn't want a chance to be born again? But how can we? Raise your hand if you had anything to do with your first birth. Anyone? Did you schedule it? Did you call the doctor? Did you time the contractions? Did you notify the relatives? Hey, I'm coming out. Did you have anything to do with... No, for heaven's sake, you had nothing to do with your first birth. You required and depended entirely upon the seed of your father and the strength of your mother. Maybe that's when it dawned on Nicodemus. Is that what Jesus is promising? Not just a second chance, but a new birth? That he would do for me spiritually what my parents did for me physically. 
that he would allow me to be delivered anew into the world through his seed, that I would bear the very DNA of God, and I would be born of God, and I would, I would be born not of my own might, but of a work of grace, and that God just doesn't give mulligans, he gives a miracle. And it's not just a second chance, but it's a brand new birth. Is that what could happen to me? And Jesus, by virtue of explanation, says this. The truth is, humans can only produce human life. But the Holy Spirit gives us new life from heaven. Do you see this, dear child of God? Do you see that every other attempt at reaching God is only a human effort? But what separates the story of Jesus from any other teaching that has ever come across our globe is the story of a new birth, a miracle that when a person says, I accept Christ within me, that Christ comes within us. And a miracle occurs. I know it's hard to believe, but we stand on the Word of God. And we believe that at that moment, the old person was removed, and a new person begins. The person of God Himself. He moves in to us. This is a difficult concept. And we struggle looking for analogies. I've always tried to find a good analogy for this. Maybe it's kind of like a heart transplant. Maybe it's kind of like a brain transplant. Maybe it's, maybe it's a bit like what Carl Cope and I did to his Volkswagen van back in 1981. I wish you could meet Carl Cope. What a delightful guy. And he and I worked together in Miami, Florida from 1979 to 1982. He drove a Volkswagen van. Do we have anyone here who's ever seen an honest-to-goodness hippie, flower-child Volkswagen van? He had one of those. You know, the kind their steering wheel almost goes into the windshield, and the engine is in the back, and it's a stick shift. He just about drove that thing into the ground. And it chugged, 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 chugged so off. It, it kind of had the feel of a three-pack-a-day smoker. <laughs> and finally, he just gave up. And he said, you know, I'm just going to put a new engine in this. Well, he didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about it. But somebody recommended a book, kind of like Volkswagens for Dummies. <laughs> and he and I began to work on this. And I reminded him of this recently in an email, and he was telling me about that book, and he was telling me how hard it was and how confused we got. And he sent me this email. Listen to this paragraph, though, of the night that it all came together. Nights later, when I had finished all the book's instructions, with at least 15 bolts and screws left over, <laughs> I climbed into the driver's seat. And in the quietness of the silent garage, I turned the key. The engine immediately revved up. I hadn't heard the engine in six months. The noise and surprise scared me so bad that I jumped and twisted the key back to off. 
I sat there with my heart thumping in total disbelief. It ran. Parts and pieces didn't come flying through the passenger compartment. I couldn't believe it. We have a hard time believing it too. We have a hard time believing that God would be so gracious that he would go inside us and he would lift out our old being and he would replace it with a being that will last for eternity. And that for the remainder of our years on this earth, that being is being equipped for some eternal assignment that is a part of the kingdom of God that is yet to come. And that someday from heaven we will look back on these days and we will understand the miracle that occurred on that day. The Apostle Paul put it in a sentence. He said, when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit. He places his spirit within us. And we're empowered by God himself, no longer a clunker but having the potential to become a sleek racing machine. The old life is gone, and the new life burgeons. Now, why would God do something like this? And Nicodemus wondered. And in the context of this conversation with Nicodemus, we read the most famous explanation in the history of the world. Would you read it out loud with me? John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Wow, that's good. That's scary good. In C.S. Lewis's classic children's tale for adults, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, the residents of Narnia, tell the children about Aslan, the lion, the Christ-like figure. Feeling somewhat leery of a lion, the children ask, then he isn't safe? Mr. Beaver gives this great response. Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. Jesus is not safe, not safe at all. And let it be known to Satan and all of his cohorts, you are in dangerous territory. For Jesus has come to destroy the work of the devil and to reunite his children with God. And if you're a friend of Satan, Jesus is not safe. But if you're a sincere seeker, if you have an honest heart and if you're willing to entrust Christ with your feebled hands and your struggling ways then Jesus is good scary good and good enough for us all 